Singing, please be seated. Well, we turn again in the Word of God to Isaiah chapter 40, as we are in a, excuse me, 42, as we are in a study of the first servant song of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it's been called, the ninth, studying this passage, and uh, we have been going through it rather slowly, because as we are constantly reminded, it is packed with an introduction to the Lord Jesus and to his ministry as the first of the four servant songs. We uh, uh, have seen in so many ways how this applies to us individually, as we are those bruised reeds that he has come tenderly to nurture, that they, even a broken, uh, bruised reed he should not break, or as smoking flax that should not be quenched by him. He is tender, and yet he is triumphant, declaring God's justice throughout the earth. We go a little further down today, uh, considering last time um, the reason why we can believe and have confidence in this, because it is he who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it and gives breath to all the people, because our God is the God of creation and providence, and therefore he will surely accomplish in his world what he has set out to do. We consider today verses 6 and 7 particularly under the heading, In Christ Alone. But I would like to read to you once again from the first verse, and we'll read down to verse 8. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison Those who sat in darkness from the prison house, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Amen. Let us pray once more. Our Father, we pray that you would glorify your servant, our Lord Jesus, again, by opening the light of the glory of the Lord in this passage to us, that we might behold it in the face of our Lord Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. In the 1960s and 70s, the mainline or historically uh, uh, larger churches, older churches, began to experience a massive collapse in foreign missions. A lot of people don't know that this happened, but for example, in just the space of the few years between 1962 and 1979, The number of missionaries in the Lutheran Church in America fell by 70%. 
the number of missionaries in the Presbyterian Church, USA, by 72%, and the number of missionaries in the Episcopal Church diminished, or I should say collapsed, by almost 80%. What happened in that short time? Was there some world war? No. Was there a financial collapse? Well, no more than usual. The problem was not some new war or new crisis. The problem was a new gospel. A new gospel that, as Paul put it, is no gospel at all. A false gospel that has not only been killing foreign missions overseas, but has been killing the church in America almost as fast. It's a gospel that many people don't uh, understand or recognize. It's been taught in the ivy-covered halls of American premier seminaries, though it was never officially embraced, at least by any Protestant denominations that I know of. However, it was officially embraced by the Roman Catholics in the early 1960s. But understand that this is in no way unique to Rome. And let me first say, as I'm about to launch into a much longer than usual introduction, who relishes talking about these things? Uh, these are sad things. Paul was in agony writing to the Galatians about the false gospel that had crept in among them, but he had to write such a, a, a passionate letter for their sake and for the world's sake. The Lord, likewise, exposing the errors of the Pharisees who were hindering others from eternal life. And since this new gospel is now so widely believed right here in America and around the world, and has it, as it has had such a devastating effect on the church and the world, and certainly world missions, I want you today to be able to recognize it and to understand it. It's called inclusivism, the most widely held belief that nobody's ever heard of. I inclusivism says that Jesus is the savior of everyone who tries to live a good life. Nor is there salvation in any other, they agree. They still insist there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But just because you haven't heard that name doesn't mean that he won't save you if you try. That's a very inexact description of the faith of more than half of our fellow Americans. I would like to read to you a more exact description. This is actually Rome's ecumenical council called Vatican II. Not the first, but the latest and the most explicit statement of this gospel that must be implicitly believed by all the Roman Catholic faithful, by the way. I quote, Those also can attain to salvation who through no fault of their own don't know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and, moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will, as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the helps necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God with his grace, and with his grace, strive to live a good life. 
official statement. For since Christ died for all men, we ought to believe that the Holy Spirit, in a manner known only to God, offers to every man the possibility of being associated with this paschal mystery, the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Um, well, did you get that? Everyone who's ever lived has received God's offer of salvation, in a way known only to God, of course, and not revealed to us. And everyone who then strives by their deeds to do God's will receives it. Uh, and the counsel is very plain. No matter what religion they may profess. It, it goes on at some length, and I won't weary you with the details, but I, I would like to give you a, a more popular summary, and, and this by Cardinal Avery Dallas, the late Cardinal of New York, the former head of the Roman Catholic Church in America, who writes for an ecumenical audience in the publication First Things to explain the church's dogmatic position. Quote, Catholics can be saved if they believe the word of God as taught by the church and if they obey the commandments. Other Christians can be saved if they submit their lives to Christ and join the community where they think he wills to be found. Jews can be saved if they look forward in hope to the Messiah and try to ascertain whether God's purpose has been fulfilled. Adherents of other religions can be saved if, with the help of grace, they sincerely seek God and strive to do his will. Even atheists can be saved if they worship God under some other name and place their lives at the service of truth and justice. God's saving grace channeled through Christ, the one mediator, leaves no one unassisted, end quote. Now, uh, Avery, good scholar that he is, uh, very honestly admits this is neither biblical nor to be found in the first millennium of the church, uh, at least by the Orthodox, right? Uh, a Avery admits, quote, the New Testament and the theology of the first millennium give little hope for the salvation of those who, since the time of Christ, have had no chance of hearing the gospel. So, uh, yeah, he, he admits this is a, a, a newer position, as it certainly, certainly is in the history of, of uh, the church. But you say, so what? I mean, does anybody actually believe this? And what practical impact could this have on missions? Well, uh, when I was a little boy in Haiti, as we were visiting with my family, I, I met a nun who was wearing a holster. <laughs> she, she, she laughed uh, as I, uh, encouraged by my parents, asked her what she had in her holster. She, she laughed and showed me that she carries scissors so that if she's uh, traveling and has some free moments, she could uh, do a little sewing. And, and all I can actually remember is, is her laugh, which uh, surprised me, which is why I remembered. I didn't think it was funny. I thought it was a really cool idea that nuns should have guns. In fact, I still think it's a cool idea that nuns should have guns. <laughs> I had met Mother Teresa, the, uh, the founder of the Missionaries of Charity, whose selfless labors for the poor in Calcutta brought her international attention, the headquarters of her order in Haiti. Uh, was, she, was she taken in by, by this? Oh, oh, yes, you have to understand. Roman Catholics have to believe this gospel according to the infallible magisterium and ecumenical council, as they put it here. Rejecting it for them would be like you and I rejecting the Nicene Creed or the Trinity, right? 
um, in Mother Teresa's book, A Simple Path. She explained uh, what she taught and believed. She writes, there is only one God, and he is God to all. And therefore, it is important that everyone is seen as equal before God. I've always said that we should help a Hindu become a better Hindu, a Muslim become a better Muslim, a Catholic become a better Catholic. Uh, about 10 years earlier, uh, she was asked in an interview by a fellow nun, do you believe if one dies believing in Shiva or Ram, Hindu gods, they will go to heaven? She answered, yes, that is their faith. My own faith will lead me to God, and if they believe in their God strongly, surely they will be saved, she was asked. Today, it does not seem that the Catholic Church is trying to convert anymore. I know that John Paul II is saying now that those of other religions are saved. Do you not believe that they are uh, sorry, you do not believe that they are lost anyway, right? She answered, no, they are not lost. They are saved, according to their faith, you know. If they believe whatever they believe, that is their salvation, end quote. You say, David, are you throwing Mother Teresa under the bus? I like Mother Teresa. No, I like Mother Teresa. I'm explaining... What has happened to create such a precipitous collapse of foreign missions in the world? And I remind you that this is not unique to Rome, although they have been the ones courageous enough, I think, to at least say what they believe and define it. But half of Americans believe, quote, if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others, they will earn a place in heaven. In fact, many others take it to a more extreme position that everyone is saved, a position called universalism. But people, they think, might find the choice easier if they hear about Jesus, or people will be happier if they believe in Jesus. But according to this inclusive gospel, God gives everyone a choice. And God, for his part, gives them grace so they can make a good choice if they want to. Now, I realize that for some people, is a, uh, religion is an opportunity for snobbery, if not outright bigotry, which I absolutely reject. I am, remind you this is not arrogance on my part or on the authors of Scripture as Paul's heart breaks when the false gospel has come to Galatia. Jesus weeps over the perishing multitudes deluded by the Pharisees. I've given you this extra long introduction today in order to make it clear what is at stake, even practically at stake in this teaching, for the state of the world and the church today. We come in verses 6 and 7 to consider these things we'll take under three headings, Christ's covenant Christ's light and Christ's liberty, without which, what I'm saying, the world is lost and perishing. So, coming now to the passage, having set the, the stakes uh, clearly before you, let's come first to Christ's covenant, where we read in verse 6, God speaks to his servant, the Messiah, as we have seen, the anointed one who brings that light to the nations, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will 
hold your hand, I will keep you, statement of providence from last week, and this time we consider, give you as a covenant to the people. And as he goes on to say, a light to the Gentiles, that is the nations. Once again, we find a very simple and short statement that is massively important, both in Isaiah's prophecy and for the hope of the world in our lives as well. Uh, Isaiah uh, goes over it very quickly here, but he comes back to it and does so again and again. I I can just give you a a couple of examples, but I would like to show you how important this is, and I'm not making a mountain out of a molehill. Chapter 49, God says there to his servant, uh, I will give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth. Is that important? That you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourself. Uh, To the end we read that they shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat, heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them by the springs of water. He will guide them. A statement taken up in Revelation to speak of the joys of heaven. Very important. Chapter 55, incline your ear and come to me here and your soul will live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I've given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you'll call a nation you don't know, and nations whom you do not know shall run to you. The hope of the world is in this covenant. Um, One more, if you please, from chapter 59, a little later again. As for me, this is my covenant with him, my spirit who is upon you, and my words I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor the mouth of your descendants, nor the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. God is speaking of this new covenant by which through the Messiah he will bring the promise of his Holy Spirit and his everlasting mercy to all the nations of the earth who had been bound in darkness and death. That Jesus, the fulfillment of these things, is the hope of the world. Well, you say, okay, what does it mean that God gives him as a covenant? I will give you as a covenant? What does that mean? Well, when we come to Christ or when we believe into him, as it literally reads, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him, in Christ, as Paul puts it to the Ephesian church. And he goes on to enumerate that, for example, we're adopted in love by the Father, purchased by the blood of Christ, forgiven, made blameless, and heirs of God, and sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption to the praise of his glory and grace. And the effect is nothing short of bringing us from death to life when we are united to Jesus. Um, Or if you want a little more scholarly explanation, so says E.J. Young, a professor from Westminster Seminary, to say that the servant is, is a covenant is to say that all the blessings of the covenant are embodied in or have their root and origin and are dispensed in him. At the time... At the same time, he is himself at the center of all these blessings, and to receive them is to receive him. For without him, there can be no blessings. That's the point. Without him, no blessings. No blessings. He is that covenant. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight, and I will give you the words again. This is the new covenant in my blood. 
And in him, in Jesus, we receive everything. Uh, what's that? I hear an objection. Someone will say, well, well, what about the Jews who never heard of Jesus? How could they be saved then? No, no, our text reminds us that is absolutely not true. The Jews absolutely heard of Jesus from the very fall of man, from the very prom first promise of the Bible in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman should come to crush the, the head of the serpent. There is an expanding and growing anticipation that, the, that this uh, divine Messiah should come and deliver his people, save them from their sins. Jesus said to his own countrymen, if you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me, for he wrote of me. They, of course, knew. And they eagerly anticipated his coming. Our, our, our text here in Isaiah 42 takes away that objection. They certainly knew. Uh, I won't go on, but I, I will summarize the, the Old Testament teaching from our Confession of Faith. You could trace its many scripture references later. How God gave promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision in the Paschal Lamb, and all other types and ordinances to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation in so, let's have no more of this. Never heard about the Jews. Never heard about Jesus. They certainly knew the Messiah uh, was coming, and Jesus can say, therefore, not only for his time but for all time, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, but by me. This new covenant in His blood, in, in which He Himself is the mediator. Uh, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so you notice that here in our text uh, and through Isaiah, how dangerous then, how foolish it would be to trust in any other than this servant. Uh, I am the Lord, that's my name, my glory. I'm not going to give to carved images in verse 8. That, that this is the hope of the world and not, not the idols. What about the people who trust in the idols, you say? Well, verse 17, they shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to molded images, you are our gods. The gods of this world and the idols are nothing but foolishness and bring only death, destruction, and everlasting ruin to those who trust in them. And therefore, this covenant of Christ, in him comes all of our blessings. Okay. So I, I do want to point out, by the way, the, the, the arrogance of the Western modernist who pats especially the Jews and the Muslims on the head uh, as they find this so patronizing and offensive to tell them the inclusivist gospel. Don't worry, you, will be you, are, you are saved and will be in heaven forever with Jesus, though you don't believe in him. Inclu inclusivism is to, to such people who hear such things an, an offense. It, it may lighten the burdened consciences of American Christians who don't fulfill the Great Commission, but it doesn't soften the offense of the gospel to the Jews and to the Muslims who will have nothing of this divine Messiah. Now, the passage is very clear. The world without him 
is in the bondage of darkness. And God gives this servant as a covenant to enlighten the nations of the earth. And so he must now look specifically at this light and at this liberty that he comes to bring. So Christ's light. End of verse 6, God says, I'm going to give you as a light to the Gentiles, that is to the heathen, to the nations, same word, to open blind eyes. And uh, once again, this is a major repeated theme uh, here in this chapter, the darkness to light, as well as um, uh, in, uh, in other parts of Isaiah. It's just given in a few words here, of course, but how important it is, how essential that all nations know that this servant is the light of the world. Isaiah 49, um, he says to his servant, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will give you as a light to the nations that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Another very important verse. Arise, shine, for your light is come, says the uh, uh, prophet in chapter 60. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, you see how important this is. Now, to be clear, it's not that the world without Jesus, knows nothing of God. Oh, oh, perish the thought. God has revealed himself everywhere and in everyone, for that matter. And this is Paul's great point as he begins his letter to explain the gospel to the church in Rome, to the Romans. Um, that that uh, it's not that men don't know God, but men suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. I, I, I brought my uh, illustration uh, with me today. So you could just uh, take a look. Uh, not, not, not this. This is man-made. I know it looks good, but out here. Clearly seen by the things that are made. <sighs> Um, even his eternal power and divine nature so that men are without excuse, although they knew God. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Now, they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. He goes on to say that turning from this knowledge of God to every kind of invented religion and evil passion and every form of immorality, they turn knowing full well that those who do such things deserve death. And they even condemn others for the very things that they themselves are doing. So, to be very clear, when Christ brings a light, it's not just to say, oh, here's the God you never heard about. No. That God has screamed on every hand to those who close their ears. Uh, it's the light of salvation, as he makes it very clear. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see. Now someone will ask, um, well, doesn't God still give people a choice? Absolutely. Every moment of the day, people have a choice. Every moment. 
Everyone has a choice whether to do that will, that, 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 that will of God, which he's inscribed on every functioning conscience, whether they should do it or not. And God will judge men only according to what they have done, as Romans chapter 2 puts it. And that's the great tragedy, as he summarizes in chapter 3, that as a result of this situation... They're all under sin, he writes. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. That this world is in a willful blindness, suppressing the truth to the result that they have no hope. Paul is very clear. No hope and without God in the world contrary to the gospel of inclusivism. No exceptions. So when the inclusivist uh, gospeler says, uh, you know, uh, uh, what about the, the innocent native in the remotest parts of Africa who never heard about God? I mean, he's loaded the question with falsehood. In- innocent? All innocent people will be vindicated in that day. Never heard about God? Well, you can't judge him for that. But there is no innocent. They are all turned aside. There is none who seek after. Never heard about God? What planet are you on? The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork. Their line has gone out to the ends of the earth. No exceptions. We have choice. We have a choice about God every single day. But the wages of sin is death. And this is the point of the passage. That in the darkness of condemnation, that the people, the inhabitants of the earth, have tightly closed their eyes and will not see lest they should turn and be healed. And in such a situation, the Bible is very solicitous that we understand this. That the nations of the earth are not already saved or even eagerly waiting for salvation, but are lost and perishing without God and without hope and without the light of his salvation. And it's in this situation that God triumphantly says, I'm sending my servant to reverse this situation and bring my light to all the peoples and nations and tribes of the earth. They are under condemnation for they have become sinful and rebellious knowing that the wages of sin is death. And I, I, I might add, by the way, the, uh, the, the biblical authors, if, they, if you ask them, well, what about those who never heard the gospel? They would say, well, go tell them. <laughs> they need light to have life. So that when the Philippian jailer asked Paul, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Barnabas say, Uh, Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your household. They didn't say you're already saved. They didn't say if you try, you'll be saved. It is the whole scripture screams, faith in Jesus Christ that saves. Uh, John wrote of Jesus, wrote his book so that those who read it, he says, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing may have life in his name. Light, life, love. He ties it all together. I hear another objection. Somebody will say, but, 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 but it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair for people to perish without ever hearing the gospel. Is God making people and 
populating the earth with people who will never be able to hear and just sending them to hell? Is that Would God be so cruel as to make people who have no hope of ever hearing or being saved? How can God condemn such people for not believing in a Savior of whom they've never heard? Again, so many errors stacked in in one question. I won't even be able to address them all, but I will certainly say people are not condemned for believing in a Savior they've never heard of. Although to spit in God's face and reject his son after you've heard of it. That is a bad sin, okay. But people are condemned for the evil that they've done, and shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He will judge the world in righteousness. You can't say it's not fair that God judges people justly according to what they have done. That is fair. That, that's pretty much fairness defined. That is justice. But people don't understand the great gravity of sin and the great holiness of the one whom they've sinned against, and the massive a pile, if you like, of, of every day sitting and not loving the Lord our God with heart and soul and strength and not loving our neighbor as ourselves, violating the first two great commandments as well as every other commandment that flows from them. Nobody has come remotely close to that. So don't say that God is unjust This whole passage, as we've read, as we've seen in the last few weeks, is all about justice. God is perfectly just. That's the problem. The problem is that he's just. A just God who will not and cannot, as the judge of all the earth, let such crimes go without their due punishment. That's what the cross is all about. Christ bearing the sins, your sins and mine, satisfying God's justice, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. And when we look at Christ's cross, then we really know how big the problem of sin is, how great is that sin. Why? Because God had to become man and suffer death at the hands of his wicked creatures to bear our sins away. That is a big problem. Much bigger, as I say, than the people who suppress the truth and are willfully blind are willing to see. So lurking behind this objection is an unbiblical assumption also that everyone deserves a kingdom. Everyone deserves a kingdom. That's like the American way. Everyone deserves eternal glory. This is not the case. No, no, the wages of sin is death. That is deserved. The free gift of God is eternal life, a gift of grace, and mercy, and not of desert, and nothing, by the way, man or woman, boy or girl, that you can do to earn it, because Christ has done it. You must flee to him. His covenant, his light, his liberty, that's your hope. Okay. All right. You'll, you'll find uh, many other uh, passages about this, far too many that I can explain today. But um, I will handle one more objection. I know it's kind of a objectionful sermon today, but as I say, this is the faith of more than half of our fellow Americans, so understand when they say, I read this guy named Clark Pinnock, probably probably wouldn't say that, right, a former evangelical who preaches the inclusivist gospel and who says you don't need the light of Christ to be saved. No, Pinnock says um, faith in God is what saves not possessing certain minimum information that is about Christ. It's faith that saves not the content of our faith. Uh, Sorry, that's actually his words here. A person is saved by faith, 
even if the content of his faith is deficient. The issue that God cares about is the direction of the heart, not the content of theology. Ugh. Okay. Here we really hit the low point in the inclusivist gospel, right? Um, insisting not, it's not what you believe about God that counts. It, it, it just counts that you believe, uh, whether it's idols or uh, you, you, you name it. And um, in, in Isaiah and, and in the Bible, you, you see how <laughs> this is the total opposite, that, that the light of Christ is joined with life and salvation. Um, and, and that uh, Jesus says, I'm, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Me. And, and we just need to understand, brothers and sisters, um, that the, the, the more they talk, the more they show their hand. Um, this, is, this is a kind of wishful thinking that might assuage the conscience. But it will mean the death of the world and the, certainly the collapse of foreign missions if it is embraced. We've considered Christ's covenant. We've considered Christ's light. We come thirdly to consider Christ's liberty. As here in our passage, we find another critically important theme introduced in a very few words. This servant, the Messiah, comes, we read, verse 7, to bring out prisoners from the prison and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And once again, comparing Scripture with Scripture, uh, even though it's only a few words, those words are very, very important, and they keep on coming back. Uh, chapter 49, he says to the servant that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, and to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Or chapter 61, the famous passage that Jesus preaches at his home synagogue as he begins his ministry. This is how Jesus introduces himself as the, the hope of the world. He reads and then applies to himself, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Jesus makes explanation there in other places. For instance, in John chapter 8, after saying, I'm the light of the world, he then says, you know, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And the people get upset. They go, well, what are you talking about? We've never been servants of anyone. Most assuredly, I, Jesus says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And the greatest bondage there is is a man who thinks he's free while he is yet bound in chains. The condition of many people today who insist that they are free thinkers or free spirits, perhaps. Uh, I illustrate to you with a little joke I like. Uh, I have a friend who's addicted to brake fluid. He says he can stop anytime. It's the, universal it's the universal belief of people in bondage to any sin that they are in complete control. And to every rational person who, who has their eyes open, it's, it's absurd. They're addicted to something, something that's currently ruining their lives and bringing misery to others that's not going to end well. And that's why the greatest bondage is the one that is freely chosen and of which people are not even aware. That is the deceitfulness of sin, the bondage of sin, as Jesus puts it. That is what Jesus has come to free us from. 
the freedom that Jesus gives is the greatest liberty possible. For all forms of bondage in this world, all forms arise from sin, so that when the Son does set us free, we are free indeed. Free, for example, from many things, of fear, knowing that in Christ we have become God's beloved children, free from the darkness and ignorance of the world, for to know our maker and our destiny is ours. We're free from the hopelessness and aimlessness to know and fulfill purpose in life. And of course, supremely then, free from the dominion or the bondage of sin, and at last, freed from its very presence within us. This is what he's come to do. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yes? That's the liberty, Christ's liberty. I listened to part of a BBC interview with John Lawson, a name you probably don't know, but he's infamous in Britain for running the biggest brothel in London and some other really choice things, by the way. But in prison, God called John Lawson to himself in Christ and asked by the BBC in this interview if the work that he was now doing going into prisons was his redemption. John said, no. Everything was done for me on that cross. Christ took everything. There's no need for me to do anything else. I'm so thankful that God rescued me. And he goes on at greater length and wonderful words to, to, to say how Christ has set him free, how joyful and thankful he was, and how fruitful his life had become. And what struck me as I listened to that BBC interview is how little we hear of this anymore. You know, it wasn't too long ago we heard such testimonies regularly. I don't know, are people ashamed now? Is there some kind of societal stigma? I tell you, it was part of our national consciousness that Christ set people free, and it made a huge difference, a tremendous change, driving out the inner darkness and bondage. And from the inside out, people's lives changed. And that brings me to my, I think, final objection that I'd like to handle that is overcome by this passage. People are saying the world is already saved. The world is already saved. Missions is, in fact, not going to save people, but going to tell people that the good news, that they are already saved. People who can say such things have radically redefined salvation. What kind of salvation are you talking about? Can, can, can you really go to the miserable slums of Calcutta where that dear mother Teresa labored so long, and look at what sin has done to the world and say, oh, this is a picture of salvation. It's near a picture of hell. It's the opposite of salvation. The Bible tells you what salvation is. It's very, very clear. We were dead, we're alive. We were guilty, we're forgiven. We were children of wrath, now children of God. We walked in the sins of the world and the flesh and the devil, and now we walk in God's good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. We were guilty and under the sentence of damnation. Now we are forgiven and have the riches, the joyful riches of an eternal inheritance in Christ, of which the Holy Spirit is our down payment. Um, and, and, and on and on, the the, the great light and life and liberty that is salvation. You can't say the world has it unless you have made salvation damnation. 
you see. Because death is also already at work in the world. And whenever faith is considered inessential for salvation, writes uh, Michael Reeves, author of our recent Sunday School class video, writing about the UK as fellow citizens, he writes with agony, people are left with little more than a boiled down religiosity, a tedious God, and a meager salvation. It may wear Christian clothing, as Arius did. But anyone who thinks that knowing Christ is superfluous simply cannot have grasped how different the God he reveals is, the nature of his salvation, how great is the assurance that is found in him. When knowing Christ is considered insignificant, there is truly no good news left. You take salvation, you take away Jesus and the good news. What do you have? Damnation. Hell on earth. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You you, you can't take Jesus away. This is what sets men free. And when the inclusivists appeal to the love of God, what about the love of God without Jesus? They have taken away the very thing wherein God's love is chiefly known and embraced by us. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sins. The kind of love that they are proclaiming is not love. It is something that might agree with some Western sensibilities, but it swallows up all the goodness and justice of God in, in one fell swoop. I ask you today, man or woman, boy or girl, without Christ, without hope, Without God in the world, do you want freedom and light and life? Death is already working. You can already see its beginnings. You cannot escape it by striving on your own. It can be yours in Christ and Christ alone. The Bible says to you with joyful confidence, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Real saved. That's what we're talking about. And in conclusion, the next verse is, after whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, they, uh, it, 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 Paul then asks, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? You see the connection to missions. There are many reasons to do missions. The glory of God, the cause of Christ, the the goodness and the the beauty and the joy that it brings this world. So so many things. The justice, as the passage reminds us. But there is this other matter. To bring life to the perishing. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? 
you've ever seen uh, Schindler's List, Steven Spielberg's story of Oskar Schindler, the Nazi war profiteer who, in a massive uh, change of heart, ended up saving over 1,200 Jews, though it practically bankrupted him in the process. I did read a review and a comment from a Christian who saw it. He was struck at the ending where the war was over and everyone was safe. Schindler wept. I could have done more. I could have done more. I didn't do enough. This car. Why did I keep this car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. Pulling off his lapel pin, he said, the, the pin. Two, two people. This is gold. Two more people. One more. I could have bought more people. But I didn't. Many Christians are going to be asking the same questions, I think, at the end of all things. Seeing the joy of the nation streaming in, thinking of their lives and all, all that they had and all the opportunities that were theirs. Why didn't I do more? Why wasn't I more committed to God's glory and Christ's cause and the world's salvation? And why did I esteem my own reputation and self-preservation more highly than life itself? Why was I not even willing to go? Why? It's one of those servant passages in Isaiah 49 that's quoted by the Apostle Paul. Um, so the Lord has commanded us that you should uh, bring my light and uh, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. It is Messiah and all those who herald him, who carry his name, who are invited to bring that light to the nations. This passage affirms with the whole word of God that the only hope of the world, your hope and mine, is Jesus. Let us therefore exalt him among the nations. Salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how we long to have such a sight of the world, even as the apostle, uh, even as the prophet rather, was, was given to see the, the glories of the Messiah and the joy of the nations and the hope of the world and how he must have longed to see the days that we see and to know the times that we live in. We are altogether too dull, our Father, we confess. We, we count it as a light thing to have known Christ's covenant and light and liberty and we are all too affected by the inclusivist spirit of an age that has no use for such things. Forgive us. Renew us. Restore the light of our hearts and our lives. Give us passion and conviction that we taking our stand upon such a word might never be put to shame. In